Well, good morning, Four Corners. I have to admit, it is always a little strange to come to the end of a series. I've had a handful of these since I've been here, and since 2015, coming to the end of an expository series, going through a book or a passage, a major passage in a book, like the Sermon on the Mount before Genesis. Uh, And it is especially strange to come to the end of a long series, a series that has gone on now for, as Walt said earlier, a couple of years. And today is that day. It is the end of the book of Genesis, the last sermon we will have on this book. Trey recently informed me uh, that uh, this will be sermon number 88. I haven't been keeping track of them or anything like that, but this is the 88th sermon we've had on this book. And I can say personally what a blessing it has been to preach through the entirety of the first book of the Bible. What a blessing that has been for me personally as a Christian and as a preacher to move from creation and fall well into the beginnings of God's redemptive story as we see it unfold in the very beginning with the patriarchs. What a blessing it has been to see Christ, to see Christ so present and so anticipated long before his appearance in the incarnation. And what a blessing to see over and over again the contours of biblical faith, and even more, the depth of God's faithfulness. We have seen that interplay all the way, going back all the way to the beginning, faith and faithfulness. We have not just been given a definition of faith, we have seen various facets and contours of what biblical faith is. We've seen it played out. And what's beautiful for us, so helpful for us, is that we've, we've been able to see it played out with all of its imperfection, with all of its humanity, with all of its fallenness, we've seen faith much like our own. We have seen the depth of God's faithfulness and His grace. You can't sing the songs that we've sang this morning to the Lord, thanking Him for His grace without thinking of all of the ways that that the people we've read about in Genesis don't deserve what God has done for them and to them in Genesis. And all the ways that God has worked in our lives when we haven't deserved any of it. Many themes, many situations, many personalities, but one great story with one great God. Genesis has given us the creator of heaven and earth, And the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So as we come to the end of Genesis, I just want to ask you, is is he your God? This God whom you've seen in action now for chapter upon chapter, 50 chapters, various narratives. You've seen his dealings with his people. Does he deal with you in these ways? Has he been present to you in these ways? Are you in a state of grace? 
Has God given you new birth? Have you been born again? Do you have faith? Have you been made right with God by faith? Has God reckoned to you the righteousness of Christ so that when he sees you, he doesn't see all your sins. He doesn't count your sins. He sees Christ's perfection. Has this God, the God we've seen, has he declared you to be his son or his daughter? And are you sure of it? Do you have the assurance of faith that God is your God? That the Lord is your Lord? And if so, if you can answer yes to that question, what has he shown you in Genesis? This is a time to reflect. When we come to the end of a two-year series on a book, it's certainly uh, an opportunity for us that we should take advantage of. It's a time to pause and to reflect. What has God done in me through this book? God's word is life-giving. It is sufficient. It is profitable for every good work. It equips us for every good work. How has God meant to equip you specifically through Genesis. Think about gospel community group conversations. Think about your personal time with the Lord. Think about ways that he has impressed upon you certain things above others. What has God been doing in your heart through this book? Take hold of those things. Don't let them just fall through the cracks of your fingers like sand, but take hold of those things. Hold them close. Build on those things by faith. It's really a a stewardship issue. When we come to the end of a book, when we come to the end of a series like this, it, it's, it's the question, what will we do with what we have been given from God's word? Will we steward it into the future well or just move on? And I pray that we will, all of us, be good stewards of what God has entrusted to our care. If you would please turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Verses 15 to 26. Genesis 50, 15 to 26. The title for the sermon this morning is Parting Professions. Parting Professions. Last week we covered the death of Jacob. This week we will finish with the death of Joseph. So we see at the very end, verse 26... The last verse of the book of Genesis. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The last event recorded in the book of Genesis is the death of Joseph. And the last word in the book of Genesis is Egypt. They are in Egypt. Which beautifully prepares us for the book of Exodus where God will bring them out of Egypt as Walt read by a mighty hand. Our focus today 
will be on the last recorded words of Joseph. We will work through these verses, but we will focus our attention where the author intends for us to focus our attention, and that is on the last two little speeches that Joseph gives. And I've called called these parting professions because these really are his parting professions of faith in this very last chapter. And they're parting in two ways. Parting, these, these professions are parting in two ways. For Joseph, they are the last things recorded of him for history. So all the believers in God since Joseph, when they think about this character from history, Joseph, these are the last two recorded things that he says. They're, they're separated by a number of years, probably about uh, 50 years. They're separated, what we get in the first part of the passage and the last part of the passage. But they are nonetheless the last two things he's recorded us saying. They are also parting professions for us. As we part ways with Genesis, and of course, as we said coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we are not leaving Genesis. Genesis is, is in our lives. It's something that we'll return to countless times in our lives and as a church. But as we part ways with Genesis for the purposes of our corporate worship exposition, as we part ways, these are professions of faith that must stick in our minds. This is where the Holy Spirit, the the true author, the ultimate author of Genesis, wants to leave us. All that we've covered, all that we've seen, these parting professions must be owned By God's people. So if you would please stand with me. For the reading of God's word. Genesis 50. Verses 15. To 26. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for Good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Verse 22 So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. 
but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You can go ahead and be seated. What a great way to end the book of Genesis and how it encapsulates what we've seen so far. Let's pray, ask for the Lord's blessing, and ask that he would use this sermon today to, uh, to give each of us a, a, a proper parting of ways with Genesis, a proper conclusion in our own individual hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every paragraph of the book of Genesis, every character, every personality, every story, every genealogy, every list, everything we've read, God, everything we've gone through, we pray that you would hide your word in our hearts, that we would not sin against you, that we would be fully equipped for every good work, that we would, as we have sipped and guzzled down Genesis, we pray that we would be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that we do, that we would prosper. Father, we thank you that you have filled our minds with your word over the last two years, and we thank you that in subsequent weeks you will continue to fill our minds with your word from other places in Scripture. We pray for Trey as he prepares to move into uh, two sermons on the Great Commission. We ask that you would stir our hearts as a church to love the lost and to love the glory and renown of your name. And to love a life of obedience to our Christ. Father, and as we prepare to move into Romans, we pray that all that you have demonstrated about yourself in Genesis will infuse greater understanding and greater light to our time in Romans. That our appreciation of the gospel will be so much richer because of what we've seen in the first book of the Bible. God, we pray that you would prick our hearts today in unique ways, that your spirit would do his work of convicting and reassuring, and and that today would be a proper conclusion to this book in each of our hearts, that it will be what it needs to be for each of us. So we pray that the one who knows all things, your spirit, that your spirit would do this work, which only he can do. Father, we come before you now and we thank you for your word. We ask that it would be explained clearly and that it would be heard clearly and that your spirit would change us by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Joseph's parting professions of faith leave us with two of the most important themes of the Bible. It really is striking how significant these themes are in all of Scripture But also, as we look back over Genesis, how significant these two themes have been throughout the book. And they're here. They're just so explicit. 
sovereignty and salvation. Two themes that encapsulate so much of what we've seen in the last 50 chapters. And so what we're going to look at today are these two parting professions. Number one, God is sovereign. And number two, God will save. Isn't the, aren't these just fundamentals of Scripture? Just setting us up for a theology that we find running throughout the Bible. So first, God is sovereign. Look with me again at verses 15 to 21. I want to put them clearly in view. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. (coughs) But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Remember, in Genesis 37, they could not even speak peacefully to him. Because of their vile jealousy and hatred of him. Now we hear Joseph, the one sinned against, speaking kindly to them. The final scenes of Genesis involve Joseph and his brothers. It's it's interesting that as we've gone through the book of Genesis, the, the last scene really falls on these two, uh, or this, these twelve, this group of sons. The sons of Jacob. The sons of Israel. The story has moved from Abraham. Notice this. It's moved from one man, Abraham, to another man, Isaac, to another man, Jacob, or Israel. And then after that, it moves to many. It moves from one to one to one to many. The story has moved to the nation. By the time we get to the 12 heads of the 12 tribes, we are very much leaning into the nation. And that, of course, is preparing us for Exodus, where at the very beginning of the, of the book of Exodus, the people have become so great, they've multiplied and become so many, that the Egyptians are worried that some enemy from outside is going to come in, and this many people in the land of Goshen is going to join with their enemies and fight against Egypt. And so what do they do? They enslave them, and they try to kill off all the male heirs. We're leaning into that portion of the larger story as we have moved now very much at the end of the book, not to a patriarch, but to the sons as a whole. Jacob, or Israel, is dead. And now, an old fear rises up in Joseph's brothers. They had hated him as a boy. You remember In 37, all that we read there, they hated him so much. They hated him, they hated him even more, and they hated him even more. Stack upon stack of hatred 
They had sold him into slavery at 17, and that really was, uh, was only because a couple of brothers stepped in. They were going to butcher him, but one brother stepped in, and then they were going to leave him to starve and thirst to death in a pit, but then another brother stepped in, and they ended up selling him into slavery at 17 years old, still, still a boy under his father's oversight. They had separated him. From his beloved father for over 20 years. Now, their father is dead. What will Joseph do? Will he now, at this opportunity, at this juncture, will he now take his revenge against them? I mean, he is, after all the most powerful man in Egypt under the Pharaoh. It, there's no sense that, that in the text anywhere that Joseph could not do with them as he pleases. Lock them in a dungeon, torture them to death, massacre the entire people of Goshen. Anything he could have done to these people. We read of how barbaric and violent the ancient world was, and how often masses of people are killed. No one would have said anything to Joseph had he taken this revenge on his family. He's the most powerful man. All the food they've eaten, the land they've inhabited, the favor that they have enjoyed has all been because of Joseph. Nothing intrinsic to them. They are Joseph's family. From Pharaoh's standpoint, that's all. Yes, he has been gracious to them up to this point over the last 17 years. But what if all the kindness that Joseph has shown them, what if all this kindness has just been for the sake of their father? I mean, Joseph would not do anything bad to them with their father still alive. What would that do to his heart? These are still his children. But now, Joseph sees that his father is dead, what will he do? That's the dilemma that we are introduced to as we come into this last scene. So in their fear, in their desperation, in their concern to protect their families, they concoct a three-step plan. And notice this. I don't think this is just selfish in nature. Uh, Joseph tells them at the end that he will provide for their little ones. Any of us who is a parent knows how much we want to protect our little ones. And so the, the idea that Joseph may, may take vengeance on them and destroy their little ones, destroy their families, who knows what he would do? This is, this is an act of desperation. And they take a three-step course, these scheming sons of Jacob. First... They deliver a message from their father asking for mercy. He's died, and so they say, well, uh, dad had a message before he died. Didn't tell you about it, Joseph. Told you about a lot of other things, but he didn't tell you this. So we want to make sure you know this part, very important. Verses 16 to 17, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Well, as some commentators have pointed out, we, we don't know for sure that this is a lie. 
But everything in the text suggests that this is fabricated. This is an act of desperation. They they come up with this message for Joseph to save their own skin. Even though dad is dead, we want you to know what he said before he died. So don't go crazy on us. Second, they themselves plead for forgiveness. So not only do they send this message to him, but they also plead for his forgiveness with their own lips. Verse 17, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Notice two things. They are confessing their sins. They are saying to Joseph, we transgressed. We sinned against you. But they're also relating it to God. They're, they're situating themselves and Joseph under the same banner. In a sense, they're reminding Joseph, remember, we're all in God. We're all under God. We're all God's people. It's a subtle little reminder why Joseph should not put them to death. Third, they throw themselves down before him as his servants. Verse 18 His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Here, once again, at the end of the book, we get the very thing that Joseph saw in his dreams. God has reminded Joseph repeatedly over and over and over again about those dreams he gave him when he was 17. Those dreams that his brothers would come and fall down before him. We've seen that happen in various stages over and over and over again. And here at the end of the book, lest we forget, lest Joseph himself forget, here they go again, throwing themselves down before their brother. We'll be your slaves, just like all of Egypt, whom you purchased for Pharaoh. What we are witnessing here is guilt. This is guilt at work in the soul. We've all known this in our own souls, right? The power, the energy, the bite of guilt. We could say it this way, and we've seen it. A guilty conscience produces a fearful Conscience. Guilt by its very nature produces fear in us. Fear of reprisal. Fear that our sin will find us out and lead to our own destruction. So if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, you're not a believer, you don't believe the Bible is true, just a bunch of fairy tales maybe in your own mind, just human invented stories, you don't believe there is a God. Let me ask you this question. Why is it that in the soul, guilt breeds fear? And the reason for that is because built into every person, built into every person made in the image of God, by God, built into every conscience, is evidence for a judge and his judgment. Within every person. Guilt is real because it is substantive. It's leaning towards judgment. Every ounce of guilt points us towards God's wrath against sinners. And so it is natural. It is in fact evidence of the truth of the Bible. 
that our guilt breeds fear because it should apart from Christ. And the only reason I say apart from Christ is because Christ absorbed our guilt on the cross. All guilt leads to judgment. All of it. Every sin leads to wrath. Either what happened on Calvary or what will happen to sinners on the last day. Guilt should bring this mindfulness of the judge and his judgment. But it is important to see that they do take full responsibility for their sin. It is, it is noteworthy here that they confess their sin. They take responsibility for it for what it is. But I think we should say that they should have done this sooner. Why are they waiting until now to bring closure to this with their brother Joseph? Why not sooner? Why not at the very beginning? Did they, did they fall down on their faces and confess themselves in this way and plead for his mercy in this way? We haven't seen that. Maybe that's part of the problem. But what is Joseph's response? That's the key. That's what we need to focus our attention on. What is Joseph's response? He weeps and he reassures them. None of this is necessary. There is no bitterness in Joseph's heart. He forgave them long ago. He has seen their recognition of guilt. Even though they have not confessed to him in the proper way, so to speak, even though they have maybe not verbalized asking him for forgiveness, he has seen and heard in the ordeal of the test before, he has seen and heard the guilt of their hearts. And for almost two decades, he has lived alongside of them in peace and prosperity. The attitude that Joseph has that we're reading about here is the same that we read in the New Testament in passages like this. And you can write these down if you wish. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. You thinking about repaying someone a little bit of evil for the evil they've inflicted on you? Maybe just a a remark that hurt your feelings or maybe a small injustice. Maybe a large one. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I love the way in the New Testament, the emphasis is is always on the body first. Do good to the people in the household of faith. Do good to the believers. Do good to love one another, Jesus says. And throughout the New Testament, we get this language. Do good to one another. Oh yeah, and to everyone else too. Repay no one evil. For evil. Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, all people. That's the heart of Joseph. That's what we're seeing here in this narrative. Why? How? How can this be? How is revenge so absent? Why is, is, why is it that his heart is so ready to 
forgive? Why no animosity? Why no grudge? I can't help but to think that there, there has to be people in this room right now who have a grudge, have anger and hatred in your heart towards someone else. Maybe someone who has wronged you grievously. Were they going to butcher you and throw you in a pit, sell you into slavery? Probably not. But maybe, even maybe, the way in which you've been injured is analogous to what happened to Joseph. Maybe it's similar in the level of sinfulness and harm that it has caused. Why? How can he be like this? The answer is Joseph's faithful profession. His first faithful profession. God is sovereign. Let no one, I've said this before, let no one tell you that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is impractical or irrelevant to life. If we did not live in a world in which many things happen to us, if we did not live in a world in which there is fallenness in us and around us, I suppose one could gain some ground in making that case. But the truth is, we live in a world in which calamity and afflictions are all around us and in us. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is one of the most practical doctrines in the Bible. It's of utmost importance. Let no one say it really doesn't matter. It's central. It's a priority doctrine. And that's why we find it here at the end of Genesis and at every stage therein. The answer is Joseph's faithful profession. God is sovereign. And he reiterates here what he said back in chapter 45. You remember chapter 45 when he first speaks to his brothers. But here he expands on that. And we get that quintessential verse for God's sovereignty. Let me read it to you again. Verses 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. What's it? It refers back to the evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is a kind and comforting reassurance from beginning to end. It begins with the words, do not fear. And it ends with the same words. Do not fear. Do not fear. And sandwiched between this petition to not fear, to not fear, is this robust statement. Of a sovereign God. Joseph captures various facets of God's sovereignty here. Maybe you wonder, what does God's sovereignty even mean? Sounds like a, a strange word. It's kind of a jargon word. Well, we, we really just can, can look at the passage in the context and we see it. It's, it's there in front of us. What does God's sovereignty entail? Well, here we see that it entails that he is the sovereign judge, right? How can Joseph exact his own judgment on his brothers? He is not in the place of God, he says. Let me say it this way. 
There is no place for revenge. In the heart of one who believes in the judge. I want you to think about God for a moment and all the titles that he is given in Scripture. All the different titles. Each of those titles for God are meant to to press in on us and create certain responses. And when we read in the Bible that God is the judge, that is meant to give us all kinds of responses, one of which is it destroys revenge. That's the message all throughout the Bible. We get various verses that talk about not taking vengeance. Why? Because God will do it. He's got it. He sees all, he knows all, he judges all. He will inflict as he sees fit. There is no place for revenge in the heart of one who believes in this God who is judge. So we see sovereign as judge. He is the sovereign agent. That's the heart of these words of Joseph. Hear that again. He is the sovereign agent. God directed their evil intentions and actions to a good end. What they purposed for an evil end, God purposed for a good end. Now this is mysterious and many people try to explain what it means. But we understand here that two things are going on. Two things and the relation of them is hard for us to understand. And in fact we can't because we're not God. We don't have his wisdom. We don't see the world as he sees it. The two things going on are we have sin being carried out by the brothers for which they are fully responsible and they are not doing God's will because they are disobeying his law. Are they doing God's will? No, of course not. They're selling their brother into slavery. They're malicious. They're hateful. Are they doing God's will? Yes, In another sense, most certainly they are doing God's will. They are carrying out, even in the midst of their sin, they are carrying out God's perfect plan throughout history. The best illustration of this is the cross. Is Caiaphas off the hook? No. Judas? No. Pilate? No. It was God's foreordained plan to put his son to death for our salvation. Was the cross God's will? In a sense. In the moral standing of those who did it? No. They sinned. That's against God's will. But it was God's will that Christ would come and he would die for our sins. So it's the mystery of it all. And what we're, what we're getting here is this theology that runs throughout the Bible. Is that God is the sovereign Agent, the God who declared everything very good in creation in Genesis 1.31, has the power to turn fallenness into goodness. That's what we're seeing, that God is not just powerful enough to create good things, to create very good things. God is powerful enough to take very good things, twisted and perverted and marred, and turn them right back to goodness. That's this God. Romans 8, 28. You just can't read this verse enough. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. Every stab against your life, every stab against your comfort, every stab against your prosperity is turned by God for your good. It's an amazing thing to live in the world as a Christian and to know that nothing evil can happen to us in the ultimate sense. Because God turns it all for good. Satan is impotent against this God. And therefore against his people. In the end, we reign with Christ. In the end, all is well. Christian, this is what God is doing in your fallenness, by the way. And this is what God is doing in the fallenness around you. As you look in and you think about your own fallenness and you look around you and you see it in other people, you see it in the world, you see it in diseases, you see it in all kinds of afflictions and trials that you face. Understand this. The sovereign God is working good for you. Period. That is what he is doing in your life. So he's the sovereign agent, the sovereign judge, but finally he's also the sovereign creator of all, over all of life. All that has happened has been for the purpose of keeping many people alive, Joseph says. So see, just in this verse, we've got all this theology. We've got God is judge, he's sovereign in that respect. He's agent, he's the one ultimately behind the affairs of the world. He's in control, we see that. And now we see that God is the sovereign creator over life. Job one twenty one: the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Life comes from God. Deuteronomy 32, 39, I kill and I make alive. Life and death are in the hands of the Lord. We have seen this sovereignty throughout Genesis. It has shown itself in election. Jacob over Esau. Ephraim over Manasseh. Isaac over Ishmael and so forth. We've seen it in Providence. The best example of this has to be the story of Abraham's servant who goes to find a wife and Rebecca's there. We've seen election, we've seen Providence, and we've seen God doing the impossible. An older man, a hundred years old, his elderly wife, barren, gives birth to a son. And we've seen that happen countless times. Election, providence, doing the impossible. We've seen this sovereignty unfolding in so many ways in Genesis. Hold on to it. And if you struggle with God's sovereignty in, in salvation, you struggle to see that. Meditate on these truths. Let me, let me say this to you. Do justice to what we find here in Genesis. In good conscience, I stand before you. And you may disagree, but in good conscience, I stand before you and say, I don't believe I've pressed these doctrines onto the text. They've come out. They've just come out. Go back and reread and listen and think about these doctrines. They're there. It's truth from God, regardless of whether we like it or understand it. God is sovereign over all. And the only way a person is saved is because God has chosen them before the foundation of the world to be saved. Take that to heart and do not boast. Destroys all boasting. What is all this sovereignty directed towards? What is the target of God's sovereign oversight? 
And that leads us to the second profession on Joseph's lips. God will save. Look at verses 22 to 26 as we finish. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The end of Joseph's life is in line with the blessings that his father had spoken over him. Remember when we came to that passage where in chapter 49 where Jacob gives the blessings over the sons. We saw that Judah stood out as the preeminent one. We saw that Simeon and Reuben and Levi stood out as the punished ones, that they actually got some pretty bad prophecies spoken over them. But then we saw all the other brothers with these little facets of prosperity, little, little instances of strength, little qualities of prosperity. But Joseph towers over all of them, all these verses going into Joseph's prosperity, the prosperity of his tribe. Well, we see that kind of thing in motion here with his own death. He lives to see many descendants beyond his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He lives to the age of 110. And I thought this was fascinating as I read, that, read this uh, recently, that all throughout Egyptian history, at various points in Egyptian history, 110 years old. This is from extra biblical sources, just other historical sources. 110 years old was seen as the ideal age in Egypt. That was kind of the peak. I guess 111, you're going downhill. 109, you haven't made it yet. But 110, that's the sweet spot. And it's interesting here that that's what we find. Joseph lives to the ideal age in Egypt, adding to his honor, adding to his prestige, adding to his influence, and adding to that wonderful fact that God's sovereign care had been over him from the day, well, from the day he was born, but from the day he stepped foot in Egypt as a slave. And when the end comes, his death, he, like his father before him, expresses faith in God's promises. God will surely keep his word that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He will bring you into the promised land. And when he does, Joseph says, when he brings you up, when God comes to you and he brings you out of this land and brings you to the promised land, bring my bones, bring my body with you. This is not my home. My home is in the promised land that God gave to our fathers. Bring me there. That wonderful chapter of faith, Hebrews 11, mentions this very thing for Joseph. We've seen his faith all along, right? But this is what the writer of Hebrews wants to hone in on for us. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions Concerning his bones. What, is, what, are, what are we witnessing here? Faith. This is trust in God's promises. This is trust in God's word. Joseph is professing his faith. And here's what I want you to see. 
He is professing his faith in God's salvation. That is what he professes. And this salvation involves three things. I want you to see the details here because this is important for us, our understanding of what's happening throughout the Bible. God's salvation involves three things. First, God will surely visit you. As he visited Sarah in giving her the promised son Isaac, he will visit, he will come to them, he will attend to them. Secondly, he will bring you up out of this land. That is, he will bring you up out of Egypt. And then third, he will bring you into something. He'll bring you out of something and he will bring you into something. He will bring you into the land that he promised, into the land of Canaan. Why is this so important for us as we think about salvation? Well, let me paraphrase this, what I just read to you. God will come to them, attend to them. He will take them out of Egyptian slavery and he will bring them into their promised home. God will save. But I want you to see something more spectacular than that. All of this visiting, this redeeming, this fulfilling, that would characterize the later exodus, and that's what he's referring to. He's referring to, referring to the exodus. All of this that would characterize the exodus is moving towards something far greater. 2,000 years after Joseph and 2,000 years ago from our vantage point. So right between, it's interesting, right between Joseph and us 2,000 years ago. We read this. In the mouth of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, as he knows, as the angel has come to him and told him that he's going to have a son and that son is going to prepare the way for the Christ, the promised one, the one that all God's people have been waiting for for millennia. This is what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David from Judah. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Why do I read Luke 1 verses 68 to 70 as we come to the end of Genesis? It is through this Christ, the seed of the woman... Genesis 3.15, the seed of Abraham all throughout. The lion of Judah, Genesis 49.8-12. It is through this Jesus Christ that we have salvation. Yeshua, the Lord's salvation. He is God's salvation. He is the ark. He is the blood that covers the top of the door. He's the only way to be saved. He came to us. He visited us. See this? He visited us in his incarnation. He brought us out. He purchased us, ransomed us. He he redeemed us by his blood. He brought us out of slavery to sin and death. The Exodus is a picture. It's a type of a greater deliverance. The Exodus is nothing. 
It's small, it's tiny, it's insignificant compared to the exodus that Christ has purchased spiritually and physically for all of his people of all time. And that is, he has taken us out of the land of sin and death, the city of destruction. And he will come again. He will come back for us to bring us into something. He will bring us into the promised land of eternal rest. He has already, as Paul says in Romans 6, he's already brought us to newness of life. He's already made us partakers of his new creation. In fact, we are his new creation. And we await that day when he will come back and he will bring us into the land. The rest that will never be upset. The land that will always be ours. A new heaven and a new earth forever. Joseph spoke these words and they point to Christ. Because this is the nature of Christ's redemption. Revelation twenty two twenty, Jesus says this. Surely I am coming Soon, just as sure, just as sure as God led his people out of Egypt into the promised land, know this Christian, he will lead you, he will lead you into that promised land of rest. It's coming. And so like Joseph, we, we, we lay down our bones in faith. We know that it's going to happen. It can't not happen. This is the hope, the faith that a Christian dies with. This is why a Christian's death is fundamentally fundamentally radically different than the death of any other person. Any other person who dies well, dies well because they are self-deceived and they've escaped from reality because the moment they die, they will be in hell before a God who judges sinners and they'll be there forever. Not so. Not so for the Christian. We will be with God in perfect peace, in perfect delight, worshiping him, beholding his magnificent, infinite glory forever and ever and ever. And so we say with Joseph at the beginning of the Bible, God has and will surely visit us. And we say with the Apostle John, At the end of the Bible, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your salvation through Christ our Lord. God, what what an awful thing our guilt brings. If we... We die in our sins, God. We die forever apart from you. And we'll never get a chance, never get an opportunity to turn that back. It's forever. God, what an impetus this puts on us to run to Christ while he may be found. God, help us. Help us run to Christ today. Help us flee 
the city of destruction. Help us run from your wrath and be reconciled to God. As Paul pleads in 2 Corinthians, be reconciled to God. Father, I pray for those here among us who are just unconverted. They, they live for themselves. They live for their own riches, live for their own glory, live for their own comfort. God, shatter, shatter that. Show them the, the vileness of their sin and their selfishness and their godlessness and their idolatry. Show them how desperately they need to be forgiven, how desperately they need Christ. God, we pray for those of us who know Christ, that you would assure our hearts that we belong to him and that we would be able, like Jacob and like Joseph, to lay down our bones in faith. God, help us, we pray, as we leave this book. In Christ's name, amen.